It's good to be with you this morning. Hope that you are all doing well. And um, so glad that we have an opportunity to be able to worship together today. The command that was given seemed to be very simple, very straightforward. And yet as simple and as straightforward as the command was, the first man and the first woman still had a hard time obeying what it said. You remember that God, when he created man and placed them in the garden, he simply said that you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, and in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And you know how the narrative unfolds just in the next chapter over, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent beguiles or, or uh, deceives or tricks Eve into eating that which was forbidden. And her husband did the same. And from that moment on, according to Romans 5 and verse number 12, sin entered into the world and death by sin. The tragic, devastating consequences of sin entered into the world. And in a very real sense, sin became our great enemy. Do you know that the Bible teaches us in a number of different passages about the power and about the devastation of our enemy that we're going to just refer to as sin this morning? For example, in a passage like Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Bible describes sin as something that waits at the door. And the point of those two passages, verse 6 and 7, is that Cain had a decision to make. He was faced with the reality of the fact that his offering was not accepted before God. And so in that moment, what would he do with that information? Would he choose to respond in a way that was appropriate? Or would he choose to respond in a way that was inappropriate? Would he choose instead of submitting himself to God's will, rather to rebel against the will of God? And of course, you know the choice that he made. Sin waited for him at the door, and he walked right through it. Sin waits for us. Sin enslaves us. Jesus said in John 8 and verse number 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is the servant of sin, is the slave of sin, is the literal idea. Sin, be, uh, sin produces a situation in which there is no peace. Everyone in this world spends their life looking for peace in some way or another, We're interested, we love, we desire peace and harmony in our families and in our lives, in the congregational settings, in our work settings. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 57, 21, that there is no peace for the one who is wicked, for the one who lives his life in sin. And tragically, most tragically, the passage we began with a moment ago, Romans 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world... And death by sin, so death is passed on all men. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, So death is passed upon all men. I put Romans 5.21 on the board, but it's supposed to be Romans 5.12. Sometimes computers do things like that, you know. They put the wrong information up when they're supposed to put the right information up. But Romans 5.21 is just as good. You can write that passage down. The thing that we also need to recognize about sin is that there isn't a soul in this world or in this room that doesn't deal with its reality. It really doesn't matter how young or how old we may be. It doesn't matter how spiritually old or young we may be. A new Christian, maybe an elder in the church, it doesn't matter. 
We're all going to deal, we have dealt, and we'll continue to deal with the reality of sin in our lives until this life is over or until the Lord comes again. But there is good news about sin, and the good news is that we don't have to be in the dark about it. We don't have to guess about what it looks like or what it can do or how we're to be able to oppose it and walk away from it. We don't have to guess at those things because the Bible has given us the information that we need. The Bible tells us what we need to know about what sin is and about what sin will do and about how we may defeat it. And I want us to examine those three uh, questions about sin this morning. Let's look first of all, very curiously, at this question. What is sin anyway? How would we define it? You've probably noticed in your reading and studying of God's word that there are a number of different words that the Bible uses that all refer to sin. Words like trespass, words like transgression, words like iniquity, and then of course the word sin. What do those words mean and how are they related to one another? I want us to spend just a couple of moments this morning looking at just some of the most commonly used words in the Old Testament and then some of the most commonly used words in the New Testament that all have to do with sin. We'll put a couple of passages with them and a definition and hopefully that will help us to understand a little bit better what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the subject of sin. Let's start with the Old Testament. First of all, The Old Testament tells us, sorry, the computer got the slides backwards again. The Old Testament tells us that um, sin in general is the idea of missing the mark. In your Old Testaments, most of the time when you're reading and you just see the word sin, that's what it's talking about. It's a generic term, if you will. It encompasses all kinds of transgression or all kinds of violations of the law of God. And the definition literally is to miss the mark or to deviate from the goal. You read a passage like Genesis chapter 20 and verse number 9, and the Bible tells us that Abimelech called to Abraham and said, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and my kingdom such a great sin? There's our word. You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Jeremiah said in Lamentations 5 and verse 7, Our fathers sinned and are no more. And in Hosea 13 too, now they sin more and more. The word sin, generally it just means to miss the mark. It's the picture or the image or the idea of shooting for a target and simply missing the bullseye. But then there are other words that are dealing with sin that are more specific. Think about the idea of rebellion, the idea of rebellion. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 28, here's what the Bible says. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. I want you to mark down the word transgressors because sin of rebellion, which is literally defiance of the authority of God, In the Old Testament, most of the time, when you see the word transgression or transgressor or transgressors, that's what it's talking about. Intentional defiance against the authority of God. It's rebellion. Another word that the Bible uses in the Old Testament, though, is the word iniquity. 
And the word iniquity has to do with deliberate wrongdoing. Listen to Daniel 9 and verse 5. And notice, by the way, in this passage, Daniel 9, 5, how Daniel will take a number of these terms and bring them all together in the same verse. Listen to what Daniel says. We have sinned. There is our word that just generally means missing the mark. And we have committed iniquity. There is our word that refers to deliberate wrongdoing. We have sinned and committed iniquity, and we have done wickedly and rebelled. There is our idea of transgression or rebellion, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Notice how this passage so perfectly and wonderfully combines these various aspects of sin into one single thought. We have missed the mark, and we have missed the mark because of our, uh, of our deliberate wrongdoing. And we have rebelled, we have defied against the authority of God, and we have done all of that because we turned away from your precepts, your judgments, your will. In 1 Samuel chapter 26 and verse 21, though, we read about another kind of sin that the Old Testament will describe, and that is a sin that we might call a sin of ignorance, which literally means straying from the path. It doesn't necessarily imply anything that's intentional. Sometimes we call them a sins of omission. David said in 1 Samuel 26, 21, or excuse me, Saul said rather, I have sinned. There's our general word for sin. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes. Indeed, I have played the fool, and here it is, and I have erred exceedingly. There is our idea of this straying from the path. Job said in Job 6.24, teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred or wherein I have erred. And that's the idea, an unintentional, an ignorance, a straying from the path. God would say in Leviticus 4 and verse 2, if anyone sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, it's the same word. So this is not an exhaustive list of words in the Old Testament, but it's some of the most used words in the Old Testament, and they all have to deal with sin talking about missing the mark or rebellion or deliberate defiance against the will of God or simply a sin of ignorance. What about the New Testament? In the New Testament, we see words that are very similar. In fact, the idea is very much the same, but there are a few words or a few ideas that are even more clearly spelled out in the New Testament. We began in the New Testament, just like we did, however, in the Old Testament, though, with this very generic definition To sin, literally, is to miss the mark or to miss the target. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? And what he's asking is, which one of you can point to a time or an occasion in which I miss the target or the mark, which of course is the will of God? Which of you can point to a time in which I fail to live up to the standard that God gives? You see, when we talk about missing the mark, Obviously, the mark has been set, the standard, the pattern has been given, and that's the will of God. James said in James 1 verse 15, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, it brings death. There is our word or our idea missing the mark. But then also, like in the Old Testament, we have this idea of a lapse in judgment of an unintentional, perhaps a a temporary deviation from the truth. And in the New Testament, that word is translated as trespass. Trespass. 
It is a lapse or a deviation from the truth. So Paul says, for example, in Ephesians 2 verse 1, listen to the two ideas put together. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses, those things that are unintentional versus sins. Generally the idea of missing the mark. Jesus said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, these deviations or lapses in judgment or uh, lapses or deviation from the truth, I should say, if you will forgive men their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you, Matthew 6 and verse number 14. The Bible also in the New Testament, though, uses the word transgression. We have sin, which is general. We have trespass, which is not something that's necessarily intentional. But then we have transgression. And this word transgression, it implies, or it, it describes rather, going beyond the norm, that's missing the mark, going beyond the goal, but this time it implies intent. So now we're talking about intentional sinning, if you will. So in passages like Hebrews 2 and verse 2, the Hebrews writer, when he's talking about this great salvation, you remember Hebrews 2 verse 1? He says, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Our word transgression, it's talking about going beyond the, uh, going beyond the norm or going beyond the boundaries, but intentionally so, but getting even stronger. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, sometimes we read in the New Testament about those who are ungodly. And the word ungodly or ungodliness, it refers to open rebellion and disregard for God. Open rebellion and disregard for God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what Romans 1 and verse number 18 says. So when the Bible talks about those who are ungodly, it's literally talking about those who on purpose have no regard at all for God or for what he says or what he desires. But then finally, in the New Testament, there is the word lawlessness. If you're keeping up, we have the word sin, but we also have trespass, and we have transgression, and we have ungodliness. Now we have lawlessness, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's contempt or hatred for the law of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who have no uh, regard for the law of God. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14 asks, So what do we have? When, when the Bible talks about sin, generally speaking, what kind of attitudes or what kinds of things is it getting at? Well, you generally, or generally speaking, it's just about missing the mark. God sets the mark. He sets the target. It's his will. It's his requirements. And when we fail to live up to those requirements or those expectations, the Bible calls that sin. But in other cases, it also talks about something that might be unintentional, a temporary lapse or deviation from the truth. But it also talks about those things that are intentional, open rebellion, disregard for the law of God, contempt or hatred for God's will. All of those things, all of those things are included in the Bible's teaching about sin. But don't miss this because this may be the most important point. Regardless of which one of these types of sin or kinds of sin, if you will, the Bible happens to be describing whether it's intentional or unintentional, 
whether it's with knowledge or without knowledge, whether it's open rebellion or just a temporary lapse or deviation from the truth, all sin ultimately is an affront to God. All sin is a contradiction of his character and of his will for humanity. That's why David said in Psalm 51 and verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Which is a strange passage, really, if you think of it, just on the surface, because we know that the context of those thoughts is rooted in his sin with Bathsheba. And we know the story of David and Bathsheba and how ultimately it wasn't just, it wasn't just a small matter. It cost Bathsheba's husband and so many others their lives. The effects of that sin were ongoing throughout the remainder of David's life and had an effect on his family. And yet David would say against you and you only have I sinned. Why would he say that? Because David recognized that all sin ultimately, it's terrible, it's atrocious, and it's a tragedy. And the reason is because every sin, regardless of how small or insignificant it may seem in our eyes, every single one is a contradiction of the character of God and an affront. It's offensive to him. And we need to view it in such a way. Let's talk about a second question. What will sin do to us? I think we have an idea, but generally, even looking at some of the words or some of the definitions of sin, but consider just a few things very quickly. It has been said that sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay, and that's, that's true. Think about how that sentiment is carried out in the history of the children of Israel, Think about how the northern kingdom, because of their sin, because of their iniquity, they're taken away into Assyrian captivity, never to return. Think about the southern kingdom, Babylon, or excuse me, the southern kingdom, Judah, who's taken away into Babylonian captivity for a period of 70 years. When we start uh, sin as it begins, people generally, when they commit sin, usually they don't think about the long-term consequences. Normally, we don't think about how this may have a domino effect on my spouse or my children or my grandchildren or the church or whoever else. But the Bible tells us in very clear language that sin has these very terrible consequences that um, affect not just me, but all of the other people that are in my life. Sin ultimately causes death. Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death spiritual death and physical death and all of the consequences of of sin and death that we see in this world in which we live. Sin causes separation. It separates us from God, Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. It can separate us from our brethren, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 13 and following. And ultimately, it will cause us to spend an eternity separated from God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 to 9 which perhaps is the ultimate tragedy of sin, incidentally, that for an eternity we will be completely separated, have no access to God. Sin causes shame. Literally, it's embarrassment and humiliation. Hosea chapter 4 and verse number 6. In Ezra 9 and verse number 6, Ezra talked about the shame and the embarrassment and the humiliation that belonged to the people of Israel because of their sin, which ultimately led to their captivity in Babylon. Sin causes destruction. It can destroy our bodies. It can wreak havoc on us physically. That's what Paul had in mind in Romans 1 verse 27 when he talked about those who were receiving the just recompense of their error. It can have a destructing influence or destroying influence on my family. 
Read Genesis chapter 19. It can have a destroying influence on my reputation. How many of us, how many of us are standing in line to name our sons Judas? The reputation, or excuse me, the defects, the effects, the consequences of sin. When we talk about sin, we're talking about that which destroys lives. We're talking about something that causes shame. We're talking about something that ruins families. We're talking about something that causes physical problems and emotional problems and untold amounts of misery and suffering. I want you to stop just for a moment and think about the great lengths to which our world has gone over the last few months to deal with a virus. How we have shut down uh, society, as it were, and how people have stayed home and all of a sudden going to the grocery store is a completely different experience. Our world has changed almost in the blink of an eye because of a virus which we know ultimately, we don't know how long it'll take, but ultimately the virus will be dealt with and it'll move on and then the next thing will come down the line. If we're willing to move heaven and earth, as it were, to deal with a virus... How much more should we do or be willing to do whenever we recognize the danger and the destructive nature of sin, which that's not going anywhere. As long as this world stands, sin will be here and it will be a reality. How we should hate it and how hard we should work to be able to defeat it. But again, God has not left us without recourse God not only defines sin for us and tells us about what it'll do to us, but he also tells us how we can avoid it. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I think that these four things will help us and get us on the way to be able, uh, being able to avoid and deal with sin. First of all, and maybe foremost, we need to learn to see sin for what it is. You remember that Isaiah talked to the children of Israel and talked to them about how they had reached a point when they were no longer willing or able to blush at iniquity and at wickedness that happened? The thing about sin is that the devil doesn't want us to see it as sin. The devil wants us to see sin as something that is small and something that is insignificant. He wants us to pretend like we never saw the passages or never uh, noticed the points that we noted just a few moments ago. He wants us to pretend that it isn't really destructive, that it doesn't really cause death, and it's nothing that we should really be ashamed of. But what the Bible teaches us is that we need to see sin for exactly what it is. Every sin is a scandal in heaven. Every sin is an affront to God. And until we reach the point where, regardless of how small or insignificant it might seem to others, it is a major issue to us we'll never be able to truly see sin for what it is. But how can we avoid something if we don't recognize its true nature and if we don't recognize how dangerous it is? We've got to see sin for what it is. Let me suggest a second thing to you. You remember 1 Thessalonians 5.22. The Apostle Paul said, abstain from every appearance of evil. Now that context, as you may recall, actually, it actually has to do with the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. You'll notice in the few verses that surround that passage that Paul talks about how the people were to despise not prophecies, but test all things and hold fast to that which is good and then abstain from every appearance of evil. What he's talking about is the fact that in the first century context, when miracles were a reality, that a person might have the ability to prophesy, which means literally to foretell, to speak the word of God. Well, how do you know if the person's speaking the word of God or not? Just because they claim to be a prophet. He says, test them. Test all things. 
If they pass the test, then hold on to what they say. Hold fast that which is good. If they don't pass the test, then you stay away from them. Abstain from every appearance of evil. That's the way that the context works. But the principle applies generally. Whenever we see those things that appear to be evil, whenever we see those things in our world uh, that we know are contrary to the will of God, why would we operate under the under the mindset that we might be able to get as close to it as we can without actually touching it. Sometimes I think that's what we do. Maybe it's because we don't see it for what it is. But when we learn to see sin for what it really is, then we'll learn how important it is whenever we see it coming around the corner to turn around and run away from it. That's what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter uh, chapter 2. The apostle Paul said, flee youthful lusts. Run away, literally, is the idea. And so Paul says, Timothy, when you, see this, when you see this sin coming up over the horizon, don't stop and watch it. Don't wait for it to get any closer. Just turn around and run away from it. That's what 1, Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22 is all about. Let me suggest a third thing. Seek the kingdom first. Now you might be wondering, well, how does that, what does that have to do with avoiding sin? I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13 with me just for a moment. The reason why we're talking about putting first, seeking the kingdom first is because we recognize that if we're truly seeking the kingdom first, then at every moment and at every occasion, what God wants takes precedence. And what's good for the kingdom, what's good for the church takes precedence. What does 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 13 say? Paul said, therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother to stumble. What's the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8? The discussion has to do with meat that has been offered or sacrificed to idols. And you know, the apostle Paul will go on and say that really there's nothing in and of itself that's sinful or wrong with meat. But here's the thing. If it causes a problem for my brethren, then I'm going to stay away from it. Do you know why Paul would say that? Because Paul always put the kingdom first. What if Paul had said, it doesn't really matter to me if this causes a problem or a stumbling block for my brethren. I'm going to do it anyway. Would that have been a sinful attitude? Of course it would have. So what prevented him from having the sinful attitude? Seeking first the kingdom of God. The kingdom was more important than his own taste buds. The kingdom and the church and the spiritual health of his brothers and sisters in Christ was more important to him than what he may or may not have wanted to eat. How about Romans chapter 12 and verse 17? This is a context where Paul is dealing with genuine or sacrificial love. He goes on and he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it's possible, uh, as much as is within you, live peaceably with all men. Let me ask you a question. What kind of an attitude is willing to absorb the wrong? How about the kind of attitude that puts the kingdom first? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, remember the Apostle Paul dealt with the problem of brethren who were taking their brethren to a court of law. And the reason is because they had been wronged. And to summarize all of that, Paul's question basically is this. Why not just endure or absorb the wrong for the kingdom's sake? Why not suffer for a little bit so that the health of the church is not compromised? What about a person who says, I'm not going to suffer at all and I don't care if the health of the church is compromised? What about a person who says, I'm going to satisfy myself and everything else is secondary? That's a sinful attitude. 
But if we're putting first the kingdom of God, then 1 Corinthians 8.13 and Romans 12.17, those won't be problems for us because we'll put the needs of our brethren before our own and the good of the kingdom ahead of, our, ahead of ourselves. Here's our last suggestion, and that is simply this. Immerse yourself in the word of God. This point should be no surprise. You've heard the passages. Psalm 119 and verse number 11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Philippians 4 and verse 8, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is peaceful and trustworthy and so on, think on these things, meditate on these things. The idea being, give yourself over to those things. Why was the blessed man blessed in Psalm 1? Because he meditated in the word of God day and night and so it had a positive influence in his life. You've heard the illustration before about uh, counterfeit money and how it's uh, not so much studying the fake that, that uh, enables you to be able to identify the fake, but rather it's studying the genuine thing, the real thing. And if you look close and you know the real thing, front and back, top to bottom, then you'll be able to spot a fake. You know, the principle works the same with sin. The Bible tells us the sin comes from the heart in Mark chapter 7 and verse number 12. So what happens if instead of filling our heart with sinful things, we fill our heart with good things? If instead of filling our heart with the things of the world, we fill our hearts with the things of God? All of a sudden we learn to think like God and talk like God and act like God and do the things that God would have us to do. The way that we can avoid sin is simply just to follow the footsteps of our Savior. You remember Matthew chapter 4. How did Jesus answer every temptation? It is written. Jesus referred to the power of the Word of God because he knew that the Word of God has the power to be able to help us overcome temptation and the sin that comes along with it. Listen, sin is a great tragedy, and sin is our enemy, but our Savior is greater and our Savior has provided for us the means of victory. He has provided us the means of victory through the, sacrifice of, uh, through the, the sacrificing of his life and the shedding of his blood. He has given us the ability to be able to overcome through our obedience to the gospel. But he has also given us the ability to stay or to remain victorious. It's not just our initial obedience to the gospel, but it's our continual obedience, if you will. It is our life of faithfulness. And the Bible says, here are all the tools. Here's all the power. Here, here is all of the ammunition that you need. If you'll just simply follow the directions given in this book, then you'll be able to overcome. You'll be able to overcome sin. This morning, are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? Have you escaped the clutches of the devil and the consequences of sin and death? The Bible tells us about the law of sin and death in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and following, but it also tells us about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which means literally that through my obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing in the, in the deity of Jesus and repenting of sins and confessing faith, and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, that that law of Christ Jesus, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that it will set me free from sin and death, from sin and its power. And so I don't have to live under its clutches anymore. Sin doesn't have to rule over me any longer. Read Romans chapter 6, because the Lord will rule over me. And that's where true freedom is found. The Lord's invitation is offered this morning. 
If you have a need to respond to become a child of God, or perhaps you are a child of God, and you need to get some things right in your life as you contemplate sin, and perhaps it's taken a foothold in your life more than it should, then we would be privileged to be able to help you in whatever way that we can. Come forward, let your need be known while we stand and sing the invitation song.